Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, welcome to all our first movies around the globe and a jam-packed show coming up for you over the next hour, including a suspected sabotage. The EU and NATO saying leaks in the Nord Stream pipelines were caused deliberately. Strong reactions from European leaders. Plus, Hurricane Ian, the extremely dangerous Category 4 storm about to make landfall in Florida. We'll take you there for all the latest. And from the hurricane to a financial storm in global bond and currency markets as global bond prices fall, the U.S. 10-year Treasury yield, just to give you a sense, briefly hitting 4% for the first time in more than a decade. You can see we're a bit lower than that now, but just the sheer volatility that we're seeing in these bond markets important to shift to what we're seeing in the United Kingdom. The Bank of England temporarily scrapping plans to reduce the size of its balance sheet, so-called quantitative tightening. Instead, It's going the other way around. It's intervening now to buy longer dated government bonds to try and force bond yields lower. They've cited the risk of financial stability, instability. This after the IMF and Moody's, the rating agency, criticised the British government's fiscal policy, urging it to re-evaluate the massive tax cuts announced last week. As top economist Mohamed Alirian says, yields are in the driver's seat. He will join us later on in the show to discuss what the Bank of England's announced and whether it needs to go further, including short-term rate hikes. No surprise that the fear we see in the bond market translating to lower stock prices. Although, as you can see, what we've seen so far pre-market this morning, we are seeing a tilt to the top side now for the Dow and the S&P 500. Remember, we saw similar yesterday after, what, five consecutive days of losses and we lost ground yesterday. The question is, can we finish this session in the green or will we tilt lower as the session progresses? What about in Asia? Well, I can give you a look. Stocks there all closing in the red as well, with the Hang Seng down more than 3%. China's currency, the renminbi or the yuan, hitting the lowest level versus the US dollar since 2008. Sentiment not helped by fears over more COVID lockdowns in the Shenzhen region too. Okay, plenty on the show to come up. Explanation of what we're seeing. But for now, let's get more on that suspected sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines. Claire Sebastian has been following the story. Claire, we were careful, but we suspected uh, sabotage yesterday when we were discussing this. What more do we know? And a stringent response from uh, several European leaders on this. Yeah, Julia, this is an incident now involving multiple countries, multiple European leaders not holding back from calling this a deliberate act or saying they suspect it's a deliberate act. Even the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg tweeting this morning, uh, he discussed the sabotage, he says, on the North Stream with the Defence Minister uh, of Denmark. And he says they addressed the protection of critical infrastructure 
in NATO countries. So that is pretty serious when you see the NATO Secretary General uh, coming out to say that. Now we have a situation where concerns about security in the region are increasing. Denmark is increasing its presence in the Baltic Sea this morning, sending an additional two ships near that island of Bornholm where these leaks uh, took place. The Danish defense minister saying Russia has a significant military presence in the Baltic Sea region and we expect them to continue their saber rattling. Concerns to also mounting around overall security to critical energy infrastructure. The EU saying it's going to uh, try to take steps to increase its, its resilience in energy uh, security. And meanwhile, we are none the wiser uh, about why this actually happened despite these suspicions. Denmark has said that while we see these sort of geezer-like uh, moves on the water, the, the gas continues to flow, they think it'll be a week or two before they can even get down there uh, and start investigating. The Kremlin, for its part, uh, pretty strong words this morning describing any uh, accusation that it might have been Russia involved in this sabotage as predictably stupid and absurd. Julia? Yes, uh, says a great deal. I mean, seismologists detected underwater explosions, and I'm quoting near the pipelines on Monday, but of course it said that they're uh, it's unclear if those are connected to the leaks. Um, you can make of all of this what you will. The comments from um, Ursula von der Leyen, though, I think were quite interesting because she, to your point, talked about this idea of um, disruption to active European infrastructure, energy infrastructure, and that being unacceptable. Let's be clear, there was already disruption to gas supplies, and we knew mm. that. Now we're talking about damage to, to infrastructure specifically and that um, there will be the strongest possible response. <sighs> Amid all the talk of further sanctions, of an agreement on further sanctions, Claire, what what might they do? Yeah, it's really not clear at this point, uh, mm. Julia, because this really raises the stakes. This is far beyond what we've seen so far in the energy war that has been going on alongside the war in Ukraine. So far, uh, it's just been sanctions from the European side and Russia responding by cutting back on its gas deliveries. Now, even before we know what actually happened here, this puts actual infrastructure, physical targets into this uh, equation. So what, we're, what we expect is that we're going to see Europe step up security uh, around these infrastructures, the, these pipelines and various other parts of their energy security. And also the, the other part of this to bear in mind, Julia, is that this takes the Nord Stream 1, which up until early June had been the biggest single artery supplying natural gas to Europe off the table completely. It was already cut to zero as of the beginning uh, of September, but now Europe has to grapple with winter fast approaching and really no prospect that this pipeline will be repaired in time, even if Russia was going to start restart sending gas through it. So this really a warning shot in multiple ways for Europe. Yes, and raises huge and broader questions about infrastructure security, energy infrastructure, and perhaps beyond too, to your point. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Okay, let's take it to Ukraine now. Pro-Russian authorities say four occupied regions of Ukraine have voted in huge majorities to join the Russian Federation. The vote has been widely condemned by the West and Ukraine as a sham. Nick Payton Walsh has all the latest. The results, partial in some cases, complete in others, exactly what anybody expected. High 90s alleged approval for joining Russia. Uh, this is, of course, a sham referendum where any votes that were indeed cast were likely done at the barrel of a gun with Russian soldiers carrying ballot boxes door to door. So even in that context, though, the message is exactly what the Kremlin wanted, a sort of Soviet legacy of essentially faking mandates for geopolitical aims they already had. What happens now? 
Well, quite quickly, we're going to see this take place in Moscow. It appears that some of the Russian-appointed leaders of these areas, the occupied areas, one of them from Luhansk, he's on his way to Moscow. So he says, then we'll see the two rubber stamp chambers of Russian parliament essentially draft this into law for Putin to sign, with the British Ministry of Defence saying he may use a speech to both parliaments on Friday uh, to indeed announce the annexation. The US and the EU saying sanctions will follow. But the ultimate question here, what does this change? For a Russia that is losing with its conventional army on the battlefield, for a Russia whose partial mobilization has done very well to stir internal dissent, protest and chaos, but hasn't yet translated into an improved performance for them on the front. Ukraine still moving forwards, incremental gains as always, but Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky saying that they will have some positive news they think to share soon. And at the same time too, saying what we're seeing from Russia with this annexation vote is them attempting to steal someone else's territory. Big concerns though that if Russia continues to falter militarily and continues to claim these areas as Russia proper and that it has the right to use its full arsenal to protect them, we may see a significant Russian escalation in the days ahead, possibly even reaching towards their nuclear arsenal, some are concerned. OK, let's move on. The International Monetary Fund stepped into Britain's currency crisis in a stinging rebuke. It's urging the government to, quote, reevaluate huge tax cuts announced last week, warning that they could increase inflation and inequality. Stepping in, the Bank of England says it'll buy government debt on whatever scale is necessary. Anna Stewart joins us now. Anna, I have my head in my hands. The key line from the IMF, and let's be clear, the IMF has some previous in getting things wrong in the UK economy. But on this, um, in this regard, I think there's a pretty broad-based agreement. It's important that fiscal policy does not work at cross-purposes to monetary policy. And they've left the Bank of England between a rock and a hard place, now having to tighten policy in various guises into a slowdown. What do we make of the announcement today from the Bank of England? I mean, all of this just adding really, isn't it, to a chorus of condemnation against this new government's fiscal plan, a stinging rebuke from the IMF. And in terms of what the Bank of England is doing here is they're being forced to act. Next week, they were actually due to start selling down their UK government bond portfolio, a result of QE programmes passed. Instead, they're going from QT, quantitative tightening, straight to quantitative easing. This is not the position they wanted to be in. But looking at their statement today, they were talking about the dysfunction on the market. And they said if that was continued or worsen, there would be a material risk to UK financial stability. This is nothing to do with monetary policy at this stage. This is the bank looking at financial stability for the UK. Let that sink in. It's extraordinary. And they have said, as you say, uh, whatever scale is necessary. So we don't even know the size of these bond purchases at this stage. Now, looking at yields right now on UK government bonds, the 10-year dipped a little. It's still around the 4% mark, I believe, though, last time I checked. The fact of the matter is, as IMF has said, we have the UK government moving in one direction the Bank of England being forced to move in the other. And this is a pull that foreign investors certainly aren't going to like. And frankly, it's not doing much, not just in terms of investor confidence, but I think for public confidence in the UK. Just last week, an announcement about tax cuts and freezing your energy bills. And now we're seeing mortgages being pulled from various high street banks and people starting to question whether they'll be able to afford their mortgages next year if they're not on a fixed rate, given the expectation from the Bank of England. Um, interesting note from JP Morgan today, they say the optics are not favourable for the bank and will inevitably prompt discussions about fiscal dominance and a monetary financing of the deficit. But of course, the Bank of England has very little areas to manoeuvre at this stage. Julia. 
Yeah, and, and I just want to say I was just going to try and tell my team there to remove that 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 line across the bottom, which I think is a dangerous thing today. This is not a bond market crash that we're looking at, but this is severe volatility. And, and what the Bank of England was stepping in to do today was to prevent what they're concerned about in terms of future market instability. So I think this is um, a key point that we should be making. Um, a chorus of condemnation, I think, is a brilliant way of saying it. And that's exactly what we're seeing at this moment. And I think the Bank of England would be arguing at this at this juncture that they're providing um, a role as a market maker of last resort. And they've put a limit, a date limit on what you and I see as QE. But I think they would argue it's limited and therefore um, not QE in, in the sense that we've seen it before. The question is, and it goes to everything you just said, do investors, do consumers, do the British public believe them or the government over what policy they're, they're choosing here? And that's my, my next question, Anna. What next? What does the government choose to do and how likely is a U-turn on these, uh, these decision over tax cuts. I mean, it feels like the world is calling out for a U-turn, whether it's former policymakers at the Bank of England, whether it's US government officials, whether it's economists, whether it's the market, whether it's the public. It seems like the whole world at this stage is calling out, at least for some sort of delay in the implementation, perhaps, of some of the tax tax cuts. So far, the government seems to be fairly resolute that they will continue ploughing ahead with this plan. Um, we just had a tweet from the Treasury. The Chancellor continues to make lots of meetings trying to reassure people about the plan. We can bring you what he's said. It said that he met with members of the financial services sector. That was this morning. He reiterated the government's commitment to fiscal sustainability. How the medium-term fiscal plan to be published on the 23rd of November will set out a fully-costed plan to get debt falling in the medium term. I.e., there's nothing new. But the IMF has made clear they would like to see these plans rethought by November 23rd. I, and I suspect you would question the timeline for that. November 23rd is a pretty long way away. And we're talking about financial stability and we've got to talk about investor confidence and how much damage has been done just in the last week, less than a week. The plan was released only on Friday. Great note from credit rating agency Moody's yesterday, which actually talked about how this could permanently weaken debt affordability and the UK's credit profile. Just looking at the sustained confidence shock that we are seeing really reverberate through global markets. Julia? Yeah, you raise all the right questions in my mind, um, how the Chancellor remains in his post without a U-turn here, I think is um, a big question we'll be asking. I'll be posing to Mohammed El Arian in around uh, 10 minutes' time. Anna, great job. Thank you. Anna Stewart there. Now, a potentially devastating hurricane is closing in on Florida's west coast. Hurricane Ian is a Category 4 storm and it's quickly gaining strength. It is already bringing high winds, extremely heavy rain and life-threatening storm surge flooding. More than two and a half million people are now under some level of evacuation warning. Carlos Suarez joins us live now from Tampa, Florida. Carlos, great to have you with us. Just explain precisely where you are for an international audience, what you've already seen this morning and, and what you're expecting. Julia, good morning. We are in Tampa, Florida. That is just north of where Hurricane Ian is expected to make landfall later this afternoon as a powerful Category 4 or 5 hurricane. Right now, over 100,000 people across the state of Florida are without power because of the storm. A quarter of those outages, we're being told, are down in southwest Florida because that is, right, uh, that is where Hurricane Ian right now is starting to make its way inland. Here in Tampa, Florida, we are expecting some serious flooding brought on by all of the rain as well as all of that water being pushed in from the Gulf of Mexico. 
This is how one of the bays out here looks like right now. It's pretty shallow in part because we've got low tide, but as the rain moves in and as all of that water gets pushed in from the Gulf of Mexico, we can expect this type of water level to rise. Over 390,000 people have been told that they need to evacuate in the Tampa area. 43 hurricane shelters have been open for the past 48 hours, and emergency officials this morning have told everyone, if you live in one of these evacuation zones, you still have a little bit of time of getting out, but the window really is narrowing. There is somewhat of a sigh of relief uh, in this part of the state of Florida because the storm ended up tracking a little bit further south of where we are. If that storm had held and it had made a direct impact in the Tampa Bay area, we would have seen a storm surge here of anywhere between 5 to 10 feet. That being said, further south, those conditions are going to make a mess of that part of the state of Florida. Uh, a few minutes ago, we also got word of a four-mile bridge that connects a part of the Tampa Bay area. We're told that bridge has been closed down. Cars cannot get onto it anymore because the winds out here are now north of 40 miles an hour. Julia, this is expected to last the entire day. Just how much rain we get in one particular part of town is going to depend on how long it takes for the storm to get out into the central part of Florida. And even when it does that, the Orlando area, the Jacksonville area, those parts of Florida are also expected to get several inches of rain. Here locally, the forecast is calling anywhere between 15 to 20 inches of rain when everything is said and done. Julia? Yeah, thoughts with everyone involved. Um, Carlos, great to have you with us and stay safe there, please, in uh, Tampa, Florida. Okay, straight ahead, more on the Bank of England's bomb buying spree. Mohammed El Arian weighs in as the central bank tries to steady the ship. Plus, We'll be back after this. Stay here. Welcome back to First Move. The Bank of England now intervening to buy longer dated government bonds on, quote, whatever scale is necessary to restore orderly market conditions. Quote, the hope is that buying bonds will help support prices of those bonds and bring yields down. The move comes after the IMF and Moody's, the rating agency, criticised the UK government's plans to cut taxes, saying it would increase inflation and inequality in the country. The pound jumped at first against the dollar following the announcement now sliding a further 1% versus the US dollar into the red, 106.16, the level as you can see there. Joining us now, Mohamed El Arian, the president of Queen's College at Cambridge University and advisor to Alliance and Gramercy. Mohamed, always great to get you on the show. I want to get your reaction to what the Bank of England are doing, but I also just want to take a step back and for you to help my audience understand how unprecedented it is what we're seeing, a warning from the IMF, central bank intervention, uh, disorderly currency movements, record rises in, in, in bond yields. For a G7 nation, how unprecedented is this? It is incredibly unusual. Mm. Um, you would expect the, the combination you just cited um, to appear in a struggling developing country with weak institutions and policymakers that lack confidence. Um, it is happening in a G7 economy. So this is historic, Julia. I mean, this is going to be written about for a long time. This is a clear crisis of confidence in decisions made by a UK government in terms of fiscal policy. Do you also see in it 
tackles the moves perhaps that we've seen today, a crisis of confidence in the Bank of England too? So if you step back, um, there were issues already in major transitions. The first transition was away from what I call the la-la land of central banks that lasted too long, where central banks kept interest rates way too low, kept on injecting liquidity, and now had to unwind all this because inflation became a problem. Then we have a second transition going on, which is in global growth. Growth is slowing around the world, and governments are pressed to do something about it. Now comes the catalyst of a government trying to do too much. The the government could have gotten away with it had it focused just on the structural reforms to promote growth and on the energy price stabilization, but they went too far in giving indications of very large unfunded tax cut. And that was just a trigger to the, the mess we're seeing now that I fear, Julia, is going to create a lot of damage. And once again, is the most vulnerable segments of the population that are most at risk. Explain what you mean by damage. And we'll come back to the Bank of England and to your point, what they have to do now, which exacerbates a slowdown that's already taking place in the UK economy. But, but explain what, what further damage you're fearing. So before the latest policy announcement, the average business, the average household had to deal with two things, high inflation, the cost of living crisis, and second, concerns about future income, the recession worry. Now, we've had a complete destabilization of borrowing costs. Um, To give you an example, the damage has been created. Almost a third of the mortgage products that were available last Thursday are no longer available today. They're no longer offered. And if you are lucky enough to get a mortgage today, you're paying 20 to 25% more than you would have paid a week ago. So now we have to deal with significant dislocation in lending markets. And then to the extent that you had wealth in the financial markets, that's been hit. So the concern now is that you have these all these things coming together that are going to go counter to the government's objectives of higher growth and lower inflation. And again, the situation wasn't great to begin with. Now the problems have been amplified. So to go back to our point about restoring some degree of stability, is the Bank of England saying, look, to whatever extent is required, we're going to buy longer dated bonds, we're going to try and force bond yields down, particularly to your point, as you were saying about the high cost of of mortgages in particular. Do you think that's enough? Or do you think between now and the next meeting even, they have to hike front-end interest rates in order to show they're in control or at least trying to get back in control? So what they've done is a Band-Aid. And the Band-Aid may stop the bleeding, but the infection and the bleeding will, will get worse if they don't do more. I just posted something on the Financial Times and I set out the five things that need to be done. And they're doable. They start with the government postponing the tax cuts the government explaining better how growth will materialize, the Bank of England, as you say, hiking 
before November 3rd, an emergency meeting hiking by at least 100 basis points, a much greater focus on financial stability among the non-banks, and finally, protecting even in a more targeted way the most vulnerable segments of our population. It's doable. The window is there. But if they wait too long, that window is going to close. I was just uh, writing those down, the five points and going through your article as well, which I'll tweet out as well. It began there with a U-turn from the government. That has to be the first step. The, the Chancellor has to come out and say, we got it wrong. We can't do this. We're sorry. Yes, it does. And politically, that's really difficult. But right. economically and financially, that's what's needed. Do you think the Chancellor can remain in his post without that U-turn? I mean, that's a political judgment. Um, you know, if, if the Band-Aid doesn't stick, and it won't stick, to be clear, if the other things don't happen, this Band-Aid will not stick. And the way it won't stick is the following. The currency will start weakening even more. That will make in international investors nervous. They'll push yields back up. And then the Bank of England will have a really difficult situation. How do you balance monetary policy and financial stability policy? They are in contradiction right now. So there's an inherent contradiction in what they're trying to do. That's why it's nothing more than a bad date. Which is exactly what the IMF warned. He said you can't have fiscal policy that, that, that contravenes the efforts trying to be made by the monetary policy authorities to, to dampen down inflation. You mentioned the point about a, a one percentage point or 100 basis points um, hike in interest rates. I know it's virtually impossible to gauge, but I'm just wondering about the longer term damage that's already been been done by this. Do you even have a perception of how much more is required in terms of interest rate hikes by the Bank of England to, to compensate above and beyond what they would have had to do anyway to get inflation under control? A lot more. Mm. Compared to where we were Thursday, the Bank of England is going to have to be even more hawkish than it would have been otherwise. Um, and that's the irony is that a program that was designed to promote economic growth and to and to contain inflation has ended up being stagflationary and is, is going to force an even greater response from the Bank of England. And, and the chief economist of the Bank of England said it yesterday when he said it's now undeniable that monetary policy is going to have to be tightened. I want to broaden it out, Mohammed, and just get your, your view on what we're seeing in terms of the weakness that we're seeing in, in U.S. stocks in many ways. And you've been talking about this for many months now. There's a, a credibility gap in the United States as well, fears that the Federal Reserve isn't on top of inflation, concerns about spending in whatever form from, from, from the U.S. government as well. And I saw the latest Bank of America data, and it sees a lot of money being pulled out of bond funds and, and equity funds and being put into cash. There's real warning signals, even with the pullback that we've seen in stocks, of a fear of further turbulence to come. What's your gauge in terms of the, the broader credibility gap that we see at this moment and, and what it means for risk assets? It's a real problem. Um, policymakers should be dampening volatility. Policymakers lacking credibility, which is the case with the Fed, which is the case with fiscal policy in the UK, amplify volatility. So already we were on a bumpy journey to um, a different destination, economically, financially. And now we have additional turbulence in that bumpy journey 
um, coming from the policymakers whose role is not to create an even more challenging journey. It, it is problematic, and unfortunately, it's difficult to reverse. Yeah, and for now, to your point, I think if we bring it back to what we're seeing in stocks, part of this is an inability to understand what rate hikes are required to get inflation under control and what the impact in terms of growth or, or recession risk is and finding that that sort of balance point to understand where fair value is, is near impossible at this stage. Do you think there's more downside for, for US stocks in aggregate I, from here? I feel so. It's interesting that the immediate reaction of US stocks was favorable because people mm. said, well, if that's happening in the UK, it means that the US the Federal Reserve is not going to be able to hike interest rates as much. So expectation of rate hikes came down, yields came down, and stocks went up. Um, I think that's the inherent optimism of the stock markets. I think that if you have a close look at this situation, you should be more worried rather than less worried. This is, again, a G7 economy that is behaving like a developing country, and that has implications for the system as a whole. Final question, Mohammed. How concerned are you about financial instability, whether it's um, stress on pension funds, uh, stress on hedge positions and options position in, in the UK market? There's sort of ripples of concern that you hear. How concerned are you? I am. Yeah. You and I have discussed, you know, the, the good news has been that the risk in the banking system mm. has been reduced consequentially. So we don't worry about the banks. And that's important because the banks are the nerve center of the financial system. But the risk didn't disappear. It morphed and migrated to what's called the non-banks, the pension funds, the asset managers, the hedge funds. And what we're seeing now is that there was excessive risk-taking there. There wasn't enough supervision of non-banks, something that you and I have been talking about for years. A long time. And I think that that's what triggered the Bank of England's response. Um, it's the concern about financial stability uh, but it's a very general response to what is probably a very specific problem. And more is required. Mohammed, always great to chat to you, sir. Thank you for your wisdom. Mohammed Ali, you're in there. Thank you. More first move after this. Welcome back to First Move. And a quick look at what we're seeing in terms of price action on Wall Street for US stocks tilting. As you can see to the downside, the reprieve that Mohamed Alarian was talking about earlier in the, the belief that perhaps the uncertainty and the volatility in the UK will limit the amount of rate hikes that the Federal Reserve can do in the United States. That hope not lasting very long. As you can see, the Nasdaq, the underperformer here, down by some four-tenths of one percent, five minutes or so into this session. It was attempting, of course, Wall Street to snap a six-day losing streak. Not looking good, these early signs. Shares of Apple also falling after reports that the company cancelled a plan to boost production of new iPhones in the second half of this year. Hmm. Meanwhile, Bargen surging after its Alzheimer's drug slowed the rate of cognitive decline in a key clinical trial. Wow, that stock up some 40% in early trade today. 
Now returning to one of our top stories and the damaged Nord Stream gas pipeline. And CNN is hearing the United States warned European allies that the pipeline could face threats and even be attacked. That's according to two people familiar with the matter. But it wasn't clear when the attacks would happen or who would be behind it. Kylie Atwood joins us now from the State Department in Washington. I could give you a few guesses, but I think they would hone down to um, to very few, Kylie. What more do we know? And when was this warning provided? Yeah, we know that it was uh, shared with European allies, including Germany, over the summer. And as you said, it was a warning that these Nord Stream pipelines could face uh, threats. They could even face attacks, like uh, we are seeing the possibility of occurring this week. And we should note that was based on U.S. intelligence assessments, according to sources uh, familiar with the matter. But not many details as to exactly what that underlying intelligence said. Kylie, thank you very much for that report. Kylie Outwood there. Okay, let's turn to what's happening now inside Ukraine. And Kyiv is making progress in its counter-offensive in the east. CNN visited a town newly liberated by Ukrainian forces. And as our Ben Weidman reports, retreating Russians are leaving behind far more than just military equipment. A warning, this report contains disturbing video. The bodies of dead Russian soldiers are scattered around the town of Piski Radkivsky, killed far from home in what the Kremlin chooses to call a special military operation, but it's a war by any other name. A war into which many more Russians will be thrown now that the so-called partial mobilization has begun, and who may well meet a similar end. This is a bank document found on one of the soldiers. The soldier is from St. Petersburg, and he was born on the 30th of September 2001. He died three days before his birthday. The charred remnants of Russian armor are scattered around town. Outgoing artillery pursues an army once considered one of the most powerful on earth. An army that abandoned tanks aplenty, many in working order. Dmitry and his crew are tinkering with one such tank fresh from the battlefield. It has minimal breakage, he says. I can turn it on now without any problems. Sure enough, its motor roars to life. When they run away, they lose not only the tanks, as Oleksandr, but also the ammunition, and the next day it's all used against them. This tank almost ready to go back into action. Piski Radkivsky lies just north of the Donbas region, which after sham referenda, President Vladimir Putin plans to annex to Russia. Yet few here have fond memories of life under Russia's sway. Stanislav is cutting sheet metal to put over the shattered windows of his sister's home. There was looting in spring, he recalls. They were taking everything. Down the road, Varvara and Raisa are back to what they did throughout the Russian occupation. Just sitting here, says Varvara, they didn't bother us. But Raisa found them annoying. Nazis, Nazis, she says. They always ask, where are the Nazis? The Russians have left or lie dead in the dirt, lives wasted, 
or nothing. Ben Wiedemann, CNN, Piski Radkivsky, Eastern Ukraine. Hmm. Okay, coming up here on First Move, the latest on Iran as protests continue over the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini. That's next. Stay with CNN. Welcome back. Protests are still taking place on the streets of Iran some 11 nights since they began. Social media videos showing demonstrations across several cities this week. That's despite a crackdown and, of course, those ongoing Internet restrictions. They were triggered by the death of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old woman who died on September 16th after her arrest by the country's morality police. Germana Karece is joining us now from Istanbul. Germana, it's uh, astonishing, actually, that we're still seeing these videos of protests 11 days after they began, despite the authorities' attempts to suppress them. What more are you gleaning despite the blackout? It's quite remarkable, Julia, as you mentioned, nearly two weeks. And despite the government using lethal force at times, shooting at protesters, and that's according to the United Nations Human Rights Office, uh, people are still going out on the streets. You have a mounting death toll right now, according to state media, and that's state media saying at least 41 people have been killed. But we've had uh, different casualty figures coming in from different organizations, including human rights groups that put it close to... Uh, almost 80 people uh, killed so far. And there's a lot of concern. It's far worse than that. But they seem pretty determined in the face of force and in the face of this government crackdown to still go out and still demand change. Nightfall in Iran brings protesters back onto the streets. A near-total internet blackout by the government is making it hard for us to know what's really going on. But video trickling out appears to show many Iranians undeterred by a government crackdown, the threat of arrest, or the bullets. It almost feels like Iran has been a never-ending cycle of protests over the past two decades. But those who know the country say everything about this time is different. This time around, very quickly, almost from the outset, they started challenging not the policies of the Islamic Republic, but the very structures of it. It's also different in, in, in looking at the demographics. These are primarily very, very young people, a younger generation who have apparently completely lost faith that this Islamic Republic can be reformed. And on the streets, there have been daring calls for regime change. This video from the city of Mashhad, the birthplace of the supreme leader, shows protesters setting fire to the statue of a man considered one of the symbols of the Islamic revolution. On Monday, this group marched through the capital, Tehran, chanting against Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. But it is the powerful acts of defiance by Iranian women that have stunned the world. As protests enter their second week, they're still out on the street, still demanding their freedoms, their rights lost with the 1979 Islamic Revolution. The Iranian government rallied its supporters in mass demonstrations, calling the protests a foreign plot, the work of a handful of mercenaries, rioters who forcefully removed the headscarves of women on the streets. But in reality, the countrywide protests were sparked by outrage, even among government supporters, over the death of Masa Amini in morality police custody. The protests appear leaderless and spontaneous. 
the frustrations were so significant. It was brewing, but they needed a spark. And the spark was that. This is not something that came from the outside. This is not something that was cooked up from the outside. And that's why they were taken so by surprise. While many Iranians outside the country are holding on to the hope that this wave of protests may bring change, experts say the regime is far from collapsing. I don't think they are about to fall uh, because we have not yet seen the full scale of their reaction. Unfortunately, I fear that we will see a lot of bloodshed before all of this is over. Its full force may crush these protests, but it won't be the end for a generation of Iranians more emboldened than ever. And Julia, yesterday we heard the Iranian foreign minister speaking with NPR in an interview. He again dismissed these protests as something that is orchestrated and organized by certain groups. And he described this as, quote, not a big deal. And he said he wants to reassure his Western counterparts that the regime is going nowhere, that there will be no uh, regime change in Iran. But experts who know Iran very well, Julia, are saying, look, unless this regime change changes its ways, unless it uh, meets the protesters halfway, unless we see some reforms, this is going to keep on happening. We're going to see more protests for years to come and probably bolder demands from the protesters on the street. Yes, if not now, again and later. Germana Karechi, thank you so much for that report there. Okay, still to come. We continue to track Hurricane Ian as the Category 4 storm gains strength and of course millions of people are in its path. More after this break. Welcome back to First Move. Hurricane Ian quickly gaining strength as it moves closer to Florida's west coast. Hurricane Ian already hitting Key West, Florida with major flooding. The Tampa International Airport has closed this morning. The last flight out departed late on Tuesday afternoon before the airport suspended operations. More than two and a half million people are now under some level of evacuation warning. And Chad Mars joins us now. Chad, I always wonder with the, the number of people that are under those evacuation warnings, how many people actually choose to leave and, and how many stay. But just walk us through what we're expecting in the coming hours and what the path looks like at this moment. Yeah, Julia, I don't have a number of mm. what the evacuation numbers are. You know, I would say 90 to 95 percent, but this storm may be higher. We are going to have a storm surge like they had in Tacloban. You know, I mean, that surge which just pushed up into Tacloban from the super typhoon. We're going to have a surge of six meters. And this surge is going to overrun and wash away homes that are only one meter above sea level. Thousands of those homes are only one meter above sea level. It's a nice little home sitting on a canal with your little boat in the back that you go out into the Gulf of Mexico and go fishing or sailing, whatever you want to do. But one meter compared to six meters, that means there's five meters above their grass and that's going to be above their home. And that water's going to be moving and the wind's going to be blowing at 250 kilometers per hour. So we're looking at a super typhoon hitting the west coast of Florida, where over 8 million people are under hurricane warnings. Now, the storm will eventually lose some power, but it's that water. You have to run from the water. You can kind of hide from the wind, but you have to run from the water. 12 to 18 feet in the U.S., 6 meters. That's just so much. And so many populated areas are going to see that type of rain, wind, surge and even the potential today for some tornadoes. Here you go. I'm gonna, I'll convert this for you back here, but 110 mile per hour winds. 
So you're going to look at 10, 110 miles per hour all the way from the West Coast almost to Orlando where Disney World is, and then back down here. The amount of tree damage, wind damage, power lines down, power outages will be tremendous across parts of Florida. I don't think anybody's ever seen anything like this. We've had big storms in the past, but we haven't had storms that just sit in the water for so long. 20 inches, somewhere somewhere in the ballpark of 600 millimeters of rain will fall in the next 48 hours. And that's not even where they're going to get the surge from the salt water. That's a freshwater flood. There's so much going on here. Tornado watch in effect as well, which means some of these storms could have little um, water spouts as they come off shore, off the water and onto land. So there's a lot to this. There's so many disasters going to happen from here. There's a reason we're calling this uh, the potential for catastrophic flooding, Chad. And um, to your earlier point, we pray that everybody evacuates and gets somewhere safer as soon as they can um, before it's too late. Chad, thank you for that. You're welcome. Okay, now on to another major storm on the other side of the world. A powerful typhoon in Vietnam is bringing catastrophic winds and heavy rain and forcing hundreds of thousands of people from their homes. It's one of the most powerful storms to hit Vietnam in 20 years. Paula Hancocks has all the details. It was early Wednesday morning that Typhoon Noru made landfall in Vietnam. The, the coastal area of Da Nang, a resort area, also the historic city of Hoi An being hit quite hard. It was the equivalent of a high-end Category 2 hurricane when it made landfall. And it did have winds of near 175 kilometers per hour. That's about 109 miles per hour. Now, we have been seeing the aftermath of, of that particular area. We can see there has been some flooding. Also, some roads closed either by downed trees or downed electricity pylons. Now, there had been time to prepare for this. They had known that there was going to be a significant typhoon coming. And so uh, hundreds of thousands of people had been evacuated from those areas expected to be the hardest hit. And also almost 60,000 ships were put into a port, a sheltered uh, area, because it's not just the, uh, the prevention of loss of life that officials were looking for, but also the prevention of loss of livelihood. Now, the prime minister had held an emergency meeting just the day before to put these plans in place. He said, quote, climate change is becoming increasingly extreme and unusual. Now, this particular typhoon over the next day or two is expected uh, to dump a lot of rain, potential flooding in other areas of Vietnam, then also into Laos and Thailand, but weakening as it goes. It's also the same typhoon that uh, that hit the Philippines just on Sunday, making its first landfall there. And uh, just a couple of days before, it had a rapid intensification uh, over a sudden period of time, which, which took some experts by surprise. But it did make landfall as a super typhoon uh, before weakening significantly. At, at this point, we understand eight people lost their lives in the Philippines, according to officials, and five are still missing. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. And we pray for everyone's safety there too. That's it for the show. We'll continue to track the path of Hurricane Ian throughout programming today. Stay with CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.